And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. All right, I'm back in beautiful Stratford, Ontario. A lot of snow here compared with Toronto. Not that far away, but we are in the snow belt, as they say. And there's been a lot of snow here in the last week, two weeks, really. Uh, Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, the site of so much excitement over the last three weeks, and it's still going on. It's backing off everywhere else, it seems. Emerson, Manitoba is supposed to open up today. Coots, Alberta closed down uh, for, you know, a long time, a week or 10 days. It was opened up yesterday, and, of course, the Ambassador Bridge on the weekend. Ottawa still to go. Doesn't look like anybody's moving up there right now. Um, Bruce, I know you've been in the field uh, lately, and as we say, in the field as a uh, pollster, getting a sense of where Canadians are on a number of different issues, and obviously including this one. What... Um, What's your sense of of where the people are in terms of the protest movements across the country? I think it's still a it's still a kind of a developing perspective, Peter. I think the first thing I would say is that there's a difference between how people feel about COVID measures and how they feel about the protests and the way that the protests are have manifested themselves. I think the you know, what we saw right from the get-go is a pretty strong feeling that a uh, protest of this sort uh, where people get a chance to speak their mind about COVID measures is entirely legitimate. It's part of freedom of speech. It's part of what we really like about living in Canada. Uh, so there's a kind of a question of, is uh, this kind of protest legitimate? Uh, second question is, is this, um, is this particular protest appropriate in the way in which it it manifested itself. And then the third question is, how do people feel about the thing that the protesters are asking for? And so let me just touch on each of those three in in, in turn. Uh, right now, uh, three out of four Canadians say the protesters have had a chance to make their point and they should leave. So that's, you know, 74%. And I don't think I have breakdown data for Ottawa, but it'd be pretty close to 90% here in Ottawa. I would think people are pretty fed up in this, in this city. Um, the second thing is just a straight out question. Do you support the so-called self-named freedom convoy? And I say so-called self-named because I'm a little bit ang- uh, concerned about um, the tendency sometimes to just sort of accept the label the branding that the protesters have put on it. When I look at that cache of arms that was seized at the Coots border, I'm not sure what that had to do with COVID measures. And I'm not sure that anybody would reasonably look at that and say, well, that that makes sense to have all of the armament uh, as part of a so-called freedom convoy. But anyway, uh, 28% say that they support the freedom convoy and uh the large majority say that they don't. So um, it's pretty clear that most Canadians are uh, happy enough that there was a protest, um, happy that it's ending um, in places where it's ending, um, and, and didn't like a lot of what they saw in terms of the way that it 
it landed. And then the last question is, do people support the demonstrator's call to end all of the COVID measures and restrictions? And the answer is 37% do. Um, now, the gap between the 28% who support the convoy and the 37% who support the call to end all measures is really people who are saying, I've taken uh, the measure of my sense of risk around COVID, watching Omicron being boosted, feeling this sense of I've got to get back to my normal life. Parents in particular, we see this kind of elevated feeling among 30 to 44-year-olds saying, we can't keep on living our life like this one day longer than is absolutely necessary. And so there's a straining in that direction. But it's so important to recognize that it's 37% who support the call to end all COVID measures and restrictions, 63% oppose that idea. And I don't know about you, Peter, but just consuming some of the coverage sometimes, it seems like we kind of yank the wheel from uh, everybody thinks this to everybody thinks that. And I think the truth is right now, people don't know quite what to make of which measures are necessary and which ones aren't, which ones can be ended sooner and which ones can't. They're looking at some politicians and saying, I think they're acting on the basis of science, but it's possible that they're acting on the basis of their sense of political risk. And also they're looking at, and, and you've done a lot of work constantly through this pandemic. I'd like to know what you think about this around the world. Uh, I'm trying to follow these threads, you know, by these learned uh, epidemiologists who are trying to tell us whether we should be worried about Omicron or less worried about it, whether we should be heading back to more normal or not. And there are days when I find it hard to, to kind of get a, a clear picture of that. So that's where I think that the Canadians are very hopeful that um, both the protest ends soon and COVID ends soon, obviously. On this issue of where the epidemiologists stand, obviously, you know, there's some differing opinions out there, but the ones I talked to, I think they would generally say that we were quite properly worried about Omicron when word first came out just before Christmas. And, uh, and we took all the actions as a result of that concern. And partly because of the actions that were taken, and partly because it turned out not to be as, um, yeah, you know, as bad as deadly, some people, yeah. as deadly as some people thought it might be, um, we we kind of won won the battle of Omicron, at least uh, you know in, in its initial stages. Um, but I think there's a, a tendency, and certainly the ones I've talked to, whether it's Dr. Bogotch last week or uh, you know Dr. Barrett in Halifax this week, uh, there is a tendency on the part of all the ones I talk to that it, we got to pace ourselves in the coming out here. You know, things look good, and there's every reason to believe we're, we're over the worst of it all. But as we've seen before, as we saw with Delta, as we saw with Omicron, the stuff can come out of nowhere, apparently, and boom, you're suddenly you're back into it. And w- so we've got to be careful. I mean, uh, uh, all indicators point towards... Um, you know, that we're, we are over the worst of it. Uh, and that includes just the general length of time a pandemic sort of is around, um, you know, a couple of years, and we're, we're at that point now. Um, but, you know, we've, we've, <laughs> we've got faked out by this COVID 
virus in a, a couple of times in the last couple of years, and we got to be careful we don't get uh, we don't get faked out again. So there's that. Um, the other point you brought up, I, I think, is really interesting, and it's about the power of a word, and uh, and that is, you know, somewhere some of these organizers got together at the beginning of all this protest and said, what are we going to call it? You know, we're going to call it a mandate protest. That doesn't sound very good. Doesn't sound too exciting. And somebody must have said, why don't we call it a freedom convoy? And that was a very smart play on their part because it worked. It worked in terms, you know, in terms of the signage. It worked in terms of how the media played into it. And I'm, you know, I, I'm being careful about what I'm saying about the media because I think in many cases the media has done a terrific job on, on this story. And uh, I know there's a lot of arguments out there on it, but the whole, you know, follow the money aspect of this and trying to get at, the, uh, at who the actual leaders of the various protest movements have been and what their backgrounds are and some of it's pretty scary stuff and it wouldn't have come out if it wasn't for the media pursuing it but on that word freedom convoy which is you know I, i'm proud to say i don't think i've used it at all until just now over these last three weeks um but you know for the most part the media has called it that and they they constantly are showing the pictures with freedom convoy very much in the dominant in the in the frame and you know that that has an impact you <laughs> keep using that word um when when we all know now that there was a, the, the freedoms of a lot of other people were taken away um as a result of the uh, the protest movement so the, the you know the power of a word um it, 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 you know, is quite powerful. It can be quite dominant in in terms of not only the coverage, but the uh, the way people speak of a, a, a of something that's going on and the look of it all, uh, which played to their favor at least for a while. I'm not sure it does anymore, except for those who are totally converted in the uh, in the cause. Um, I find I find your numbers, you know, quite. Um, Quite intriguing, uh, because I think that over the last three weeks, there's probably been some movement in that number. That initially, when it was lo- it when it looked like a peaceful, nonviolent, you know, protest movement, I'm talking about the first couple of days. I think they attracted, you know, su- support in different parts of the country, and those numbers were probably not as they seem to be today. Um, and I think, I don't know when you came out of the field, but the whole thing about the, the guns at the Coots border um, may have been after you came out of the field, which would indicate an even stronger resistance uh, to the various protests. So that, that is exactly the kind of stuff that Steve Schmidt was talking about last week that was, we were running the risk of, uh, of seeing happen here. Yeah, well, I, look, I think that, that that's probably right, Peter. Um, but I also know that one of the things that was happening in polling in the, in the way that polling is constructed and sometimes the way that it's reported on is that 
you know, just in the numbers that I showed you today, the difference between the 28% who say that they support the so-called Freedom Convoy and the 37% who say that they support the demonstrators' call to end COVID-related measures and restrictions tells us that how you ask the question can give you a different sense of how much support they have. And a whole lot of that 37% or a significant chunk of it are people who would say, can I support the call to end the COVID related restrictions without having people do abusive and hateful things without people carrying Confederate flags and Nazi swastikas and selling star of David uh, things and, and piling weapons into uh, uh, trucks down at the Coots border without causing $300 million worth of economic damage. That was the quote from, uh, I think uh, that was quoted in NBC News, uh, American news channel. Can I can I have a way of expressing my desire to end these measures without buying into all of that? And I think that uh, there was at least one polling company, and I'm not going to name names, um, that that put a poll out that kind of insinuated that 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 basically the desire to end mandates was the same as the support for the convoy. And I don't think that was ever true. Um, I do think you're right that once people started to see what was happening in Ottawa and how long it was going on and how disruptive it was and the the various sub elements uh, and some of the people leading, you know, the president of Freedom Convoy 2022 uh, sitting in front of a TV camera and pretending that they were going to be able to negotiate the dissolution of government. Um, then I think people just started looking at it and going, this is not how we would ever want to end these COVID measures. We didn't come through two years of living with the anxiety about health for ourselves and for our loved ones and the discipline of living with the guidance from professionals and scientists only to say, sure, let's just decide in the 11th hour that the queen of <laughs> whatever, I mean, these people that, that sort of profess all these conspiracy theories, let's just sort of surrender the reins of government to them. So um, I do think that what has been happening in Ottawa has made some people go, this is, this has gone on way too long. There's something really wrong with the policing situation. Maybe we're going to come to that. The arms at the Coots border. Absolutely. The blockade of the ambassador bridge and the sense of uh, economic turmoil that that caused. I think it all just sort of laddered up to a, uh, can somebody take the wheel here? Can we, can we stop the protests and have the proper debate about what to do about COVID. And hopefully, we're not there yet. Hopefully, we'll be there soon. Uh, but the Ottawa piece is going to be a hard one, I think, to finish. All right. Okay, I want to pick up on that. Uh, we will after this quick pause. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on the Bridge. For this Wednesday, Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. And as we always say, you're welcome to join us from wherever you can. 
we're glad to have you with us. And we're glad, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times in the last, uh, the last couple of weeks that the numbers for the bridge, Smoke, Mirrors and the Truth, Good Talk, all of it have gone up considerably. Um, well, it started in the last election campaign, but it's it just on a continuing movement upwards. Um, it's been nice to look at the charts that are put out by Apple um, that the top political podcast in Canada uh, has been the bridge for the last couple of weeks. And it uh, still is there uh, today. So, you know, that's um, that's encouraging. It's good to know that you uh, like to hear what we have to say and the guests that we've had on the program. Um, okay, let me get to some of the things that some of the things that you mentioned. Um, the Ottawa Police Force. The chief uh, resigns yesterday. It was fired. I guess we're probably not going to know the real truth to that story for a while. Uh, whatever the case, um, a lot of unrest and unhappiness about the way the Ottawa situation has unfolded and the lack of what seemed to be any enforcement, law, law enforcement, um, with the protesters. Uh, do you want to say anything about this? Do you do you know something yeah, that the, the rest yeah, of us I, don't I'm, know? I'm kind of cautious about not going on too long about it because a lot of listeners don't don't live in Ottawa and don't feel it quite as keenly. But um, as someone who lives here, watching the occupation of the city and knowing so many people and businesses that were really hard pressed to kind of, you know, just kind of get through their daily lives without going crazy from the noise, without feeling fearful from um, the kind of aggressions of, of people who would, who would stop and insult them if they were wearing masks, um, you know, the efforts to get into businesses uh, without uh, obeying the vast, uh, the mask mandates, that sort of thing. It's been a, it's been uh, traumatizing for a lot of people. Um and I think one of the, the worst parts of it has been a growing realization that our police force um, wasn't really up to the job of, of preventing this from becoming something more than a protest where people come and express their opinions and instead becoming something where um, lives and businesses were disrupted and a, you know, a group kind of encamped themselves saying that they were going to overthrow the government. However silly that sounds on the surface the fact that you can park all these rigs in front of the parliament building and prime minister's office, and nobody seems able to figure out how to move them out. Uh, that was quite distressing for people. And it takes me to the question of, well, what was wrong with the police force? Cause certainly what the federal government was saying, and I think the Ontario government was basically hiding out uh, through this first couple of weeks, through the first couple of weeks of it. But the federal government was saying, the way policing works in a situation like this is the local municipal police force has a jurisdiction. And so it's up to them if they, um, how, how they enforce the laws and if they need more help, they should ask for it. And the chain of command is ask the province and the province asks the feds if, if there's still more help needed and that didn't happen and it didn't, or if it did, it wasn't clear enough uh, that it was happening. And so we ended up in this situation where it got worse rather than better. When I think most people thought after the first three days, oh, it's going to dissipate. People are going to go home. They're going to have said their thing. 
you know, slept in their trucks long enough, ate rotten food long enough, found no place to go to the bathroom enough times, and they'll just kind of leave. And now that what's clear is that they're not, a whole bunch of them are not doing that and they're not intending to do that. And, and so there are questions about how did the police not understand that there were some underlying elements that were, um, that are determined to have some sort of conflict, maybe a physical conflict. Uh, I think that's where we are. We don't know if financial measures are going to be enough to uh, have these rigs leave town. Uh, I don't think that's clear at all. I hope that that happens, but I hope it starts to manifest itself soon. So the whole question of the competency of the policing has been a huge one in Ottawa. Um, There are questions about some of the video that we saw out of the Coots border uh, as well. Uh, which uh, I think most people would look at and say, police are humans, they're entitled to have their opinions, but it should be pretty clear what side of the law they're on uh, when they're in the business of enforcing law in a situation like that. And it wasn't clear in some of the video that I saw. But back to Ottawa for one last point. Um, Competency is one thing, but whether or not police feel that they're entitled to reinterpret the law or only enforce the laws that they want to enforce, that's become a question in respect of the Ottawa police force. And yesterday, um, you know, might make some people feel better because if you thought, well, the real problem was uh, Chief Slowly wasn't very competent and he's gone. And so whoever replaces him will be more competent. That's only looking at the one aspect of the problem that was apparent here the competency aspect. The other issue, which is whether or not the force has a problem inside it of officers who feel as though they don't want to enforce laws that they don't personally like or agree with. I think that remains undealt with. And I I just saw this quote this morning, Peter, I want to leave this with you and kind of ask you, how does that strike you when you, so last October, The Ottawa police chief told CBC that, quote, there's rot in the organization that's going to come to light. It's not going to look good, but have confidence that we're actually doing that work, the heavy, difficult, the necessary work of ridding the organization literally of cancer. That was the Ottawa police chief last October. And now he's gone. And do we think that that cancer that he's referring to is gone? So, look, I can look at the announcements yesterday of his re- resignation and say, well, you know, people said that he was bullying and and I don't support bullying. But and I don't know what the truth was, but I know in October he was describing something that sounded um, like a real problem. And here we are today. And it's hard for me not to think it's still a real problem. Yeah, Um it's clear, and it's been clear to me, uh, you know, for some time that there. Uh, I guess it started with some of those comments from the, the police chief last fall, that there are real issues inside that force, and there was a real, um, there were real issues at the most senior levels of the force between one of the, between some of the most senior officers. They didn't like each other. They didn't respect each other. They didn't take direction from each other. Um, so that was all already in play before this even started. So then it, then it appears to have even got worse during the protests. Um, 
We don't know the story. We don't know the real story. I see that some of the CBC journalism on this has been terrific in the last, uh, well, last few months, but especially in the last few days of trying to get at what was really going on in there uh, and what should we assume is going to happen now. Um, I mean, you you don't paint a very pretty picture of what of how this might end. You seem, you know, truly worried about how this might end. I'm worried about it because I do think that uh, some of the people who are at the heart of the organization of the protest um, have never had a realistic sense of what they were going to be able to accomplish. Don't seem to be uh, particularly fussed by the fact that they don't have support, the fact that there is a, a now an emergency measures act that's been brought into play. The fact that, you know, there's a lot of public opposition that's become apparent to them around them. I, you know, my wife and I went to the counter protest on Sunday in part because we wanted to kind of see what the level of energy and vitriol was on the part of Ottawans who were saying, you know, police aren't doing enough. We're going to make our voices heard. And it was quite powerful, quite a powerful experience. And one of the most powerful moments was looking at these pickup trucks, essentially, because this is trucks that were trying to come in and go to the downtown core that were stopped by regular citizens who said, we're just going to stand in front of them. Or we're going to hold signs. We're going to chant and we're going to tell them to go home. And off to the side were probably 100 police officers who were just kind of standing uh, away from that scene. And um, the only role that they seemed to play was once a trucker decided that he was going to go home I say he, there were some she's, but it was mostly he's. Uh, then the police would surround the truck and help them get through the crowd of regular citizens um, and get on their way. So there's a real kind of mistrust of the police now that's developed. I don't think the mayor has done a very good job of kind of giving people confidence. Yesterday, he was asked if slowly was a scapegoat and his quote was that at the end of the day, the final shots are made by the chief. Well, that's not leaving us with a lot of hope about how this is going to go. And, and I, I kind of also feel, and I, you mentioned the freedom convoy and the use of words, and this is our smoke mirrors and the truth that episode. And I also have watched as politicians kind of some of them, they kind of go back and forth with what they sense is the wind here yesterday. Gee, so unusual for a politician to do that. Yeah, it's definitely the thing that they are most often associated with. I get that. Um, but yesterday, Doug Ford, you know, was asked about vaccinations and vaccine mandates. And he said something like, well, you know, there's hardworking folks who don't want to take them. And, you know, God bless them. That's their choice. Now, there's not that many different positions to have, but Doug Ford has had all of them uh, on this. And I don't think it's that helpful to be saying on Friday or whenever it was, we're going to bring down the hammer and saying on Tuesday, if you don't want this, it's okay with us. I think there has to be a through line. And I don't know that it's vaccine mandates forever, but I think that this idea that you can, 
ping kind of different messages or significantly different messages into the marketplace in the hopes that people hear from you what they want to hear from you and don't hear the other thing that you're saying that's exactly the opposite of that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a sad thing to watch in politics now because I think that there is a lot of good journalism right now. And I think a lot of good journalism journalists want to shine a light on that, but they're kind of overwhelmed uh, by how much of it there is, how much of it doesn't traffic through normal media channels. It's just kind of online out there, people saying things on Twitter and so on. And, um, and it kind of confuses the mindset of the public sometimes. There's no question about it. Uh, just before we leave this issue of police forces and, and the military for that matter, um, let me just say that, you know, long before this protest, there have always been questions about certain elements within uh, groups like that, police, the army, what have you, um, who were had extremist views. And we've seen it play out in different issues over the last 20, 30 years. Um, we've seen it play out on this. I mean, uh, as you warned earlier, you got to be careful what you trust on on social media and what's the origin of some of this stuff. But there, you know, there appeared to be, um, you know, police officers, Ottawa police officers in some cases, OPP officers, the Ontario Provincial Police, in others, expressing their support for the protesters um, when they're supposedly policing them, which seemed very odd, uh, odd at best. Um, we've God seen is the most polite Canadian exactly. way to describe that. Right? Right. And I exactly. salute you for doing that, but you and I both know <laughs> odd is the nicest thing that you could say about <laughs> That's it. That's right. Uh, it is the, the army doesn't appear to be screwing around on, on the way they're dealing with issues within, uh, the Canadian armed forces. They've already tossed out two guys from, uh, JTF two, the elite uh, commando force, um, who uh, I think more more than just expressed support for the protesters, they were involved in the protests. Um, so they their their history they're gone, uh, and an, an investigation is is underway. Um, but you know whether that's in a way that kind of cancer the rot that the the former police chief in Ottawa was talking about in terms of what happens inside some. Uh, groups that are there to police and protect um it it's got to be it's got to be dealt with and it has to be examined and investigated and taken more seriously than it clearly has been before if he knew this last fall uh that he had a problem within his own force and nothing's been done about it so far that's an abdication of responsibility and needs to be investigated and i assume it will be um, one assumes there's going to be once this is all over and it will end at some point, um, you know, and hopefully not uh, in a violent manner, but it could be. But whatever happens to end it, uh, there will, will be some kind of board of inquiry or investigation into how, how all this played out. Um, I think there should be a royal commission and I don't love the term royal commission, but I think it's the highest level in our country of this is a serious matter that we have to investigate. And, and um, I know that, that some have called for a, a commission that looks at COVID and the measures and the choices and all of that. I actually think that yeah, it's useful to do that, um, but not from the standpoint of a kind of a prosecutorial 
who got what wrong, but rather what do we need to know and do differently going forward? But I'm more preoccupied with this question of, um, are we giving people um, weapons in our policing services and in our military who don't accept uh, that they're there to enforce laws passed by elected people? Uh, I think that's a big issue and it's time that we, we dug into it. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I we've both been around long enough to have seen, not as frequently uh, as it used to be, but the appointment of royal commissions, and they 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 take far too long to come up with their um, study and recommendations and conclusions. Uh, yeah, it costs an awful lot of money, um, and by the time they come out, people are so like that's that was yesterday's problem, and they've kind of moved yep. on, and the things sit on a shelf somewhere. So I've seen that. You've seen it, um, including on uh, on policing. Remember uh, Donald McDonald and the uh, Commission of yes. Inquiry into the RCMP in the mid nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties. Um, but I do think something has to happen uh, because I think that issue about um, the fact that some members of our, our the forces that are there to protect and serve and police are uh, ignoring the instructions they're given uh, by the appropriate authorities and have their own take on the way things should be. Uh, and that uh, that can't be allowed to happen. Um, we have a system here <laughs> and and uh, a line of authority and it should be uh, it should be obeyed. Um, I want to get one more, uh, squeeze one more thing in here in the couple of minutes we have left. Uh, you touched on a little bit in terms of mandates and vaccine uh, rollouts across the country and where we are on restrictions, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There is seemingly a rush to the door um, marked end of restrictions or let's get to normalization or, you know, you're on your own. Everybody's going to get it anyway. So blah, blah, blah. Um and there's a, it, there is uh, that term that I think you used in the past. It's kind of the wild, wild west out there, depending on what province, which government, what authority, uh, as to what the rules are, um, which doesn't make for a, a, a very, uh, you know, it doesn't make for a country where everybody kind of gets it, knows where we are, because I lose track. Because every day you hear a different province is doing this, and you wonder, well, well what about the province I'm in? Well, where, you know, is there going to be some kind of uniform exit from uh, from all this? Or is there a, a, you know, is there a rush to the door to normalize? Is, you know, are they still listening to science? And I use the generic uh, we and they uh, in, in all this. Is, uh, you know, are, are they still listening to science or are they listening to polls? I mean, uh, you know who's what? making I think the decisions? That's a great question. Uh, that are they are people listening to science? Because uh, I think the answer is, for the most part, they really are. Now, the difference between what young people are observing and hearing in the science and what older people are taking away from the science is really quite striking. So, one question that we're going to publish in the next couple of days, Peter, is: Is it safe to treat COVID like the annual flu now, or to con- is it better to continue to treat it as though it's more dangerous than the flu? And the answers to that across the country 
are 41% saying it's safe to treat it more like the annual flu now. So again, remember that 24% or 28% support the convoy, 37% support the call to end the measures, 41% say it's safe to treat it like the flu. How does that 41 happen? It happens because Omicron uh, was the latest welter of evidence that people consumed. And what they consumed about it was people who they knew who got it didn't get that sick. The measures weren't, uh, the, the symptoms weren't that bad. The health system also didn't buckle. And so if you're consuming that science, you might reasonably say, it feels safe. I'm not just well, a wishful safe, but an evidence-based safe. And I think this is the challenge for the epidemiologists and the public health officials is that the, so I'm going to, I'm just going to give you the breakdown between the 18 to 29 crowd and the 60 plus crowd. All right. If you're 18 to 29, 50%, 51% actually say it's safe to treat it as the flu right now. If you're 60 or older, it's 28%. It's literally twice as you're twice as likely practically to, if you're older, to say, I don't think it's safe to treat it that way. And is one uh, demographic anti-science or unscience in their interpretation and the other not? Not necessarily, because we've heard throughout this that older people are more vulnerable. Um, and so the level of risk that people are consuming, they're not just making up what they want it to be in order to get back to normal if they're, if they're younger. And they're not just making it up because they're frightened if they're older. To some degree, the evidence has been pointing them in that direction. And I think part of what makes this a more dynamic political situation is that the politicians who tend to want to tack with the winds see what's happening with young people, see that the difference between people on the left and the center and the right uh, is really quite striking on this kind of question. And so it starts to become more of a political calculus than maybe it should be. But, but science is part of it for most people. They're just their consumption of what happened in Omicron is is different. Uh, we had 80, uh, 78% who say that they knew someone who had COVID. Now that number grew, grew phenomenally through Omicron. And um, only 5% say that most of the people that they knew who got it had bad symptoms. Everybody else said, well, some bad, some not. Most were mild. And that's, that's kind of informing people. It's, you know, it, that's a real life kind of evidence base that they're consuming. A lot of numbers there you've just thrown at us. And uh, I know at some point uh, in the next couple of days, you'll, this will all get put together into some kind of a, a release at uh, Abacus data and uh, you'll be able to find it all online. Yeah, I think we're, uh, David Coletto and I are thinking about writing a, a kind of an essay with it to kind of give it, you know, some context and readability because, uh, you know, until we turn this into a, a, a video uh, podcast where we can throw some things up on the screen and I'm hoping that one day you're, you're, your your production team can yeah, turn their attention yeah, my, to that. My production team. Good luck and with that. Your executive producers and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and all the your various set designers. Producers. Exactly. 
we got the, we'll get them all working on that. All right, good conversation, good discussion, and uh, we'll have more on Friday, of course, when Chantel joins us for for good talk. Tomorrow is uh, your turn, so get those cards and letters coming in. There've been a lot already this week. Some great programs this week. Um, the Mansbridge Podcast at Gmail dot com. The Mansbridge Podcast at Gmail dot com. Draw me a line. All right, thanks, Bruce, and thank you for listening. I'm Peter Mansbridge. We'll be back in twenty four hours. Yeah, you too. Thank you.